Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you uh, after our uh, 30th wedding anniversary trip to Maine. That's uh, the first um, anniversary trip I've ever taken where I've flown into a hurricane and out of a tropical storm. So uh, it was quite a journey. And I'll tell you, I got to give those pilots credit because as we were coming into Boston, I mean, the, it was like this. I mean, the whole way down. And I thought, how's he going to get these wheels down? Are we going to, you know, but he did it, you know, and we're back. So glad to be back with you this morning. We're continuing our series, Rediscover Church. Um, for those of you, which is most of you who have received the book um, by the same title, you know it's been a very challenging book, uh, a good book. And uh, we've been hearing stories about how it's impacting people. And, and as we go through this series, um, it, it's really challenging us to rediscover church. Or, in the case of some people, to discover church for the very first time. Um, there's a lot more to the church than what we think. And sometimes our experiences color our view of the church, and sometimes it's just a lack of biblical understanding of what the church is, who the church is. I thought Eric did a great job a couple weeks ago talking about who can belong to the church. And then last week, Trevor, when he was talking about the importance of gathering and why we gather and, and why it's important. Um, you know, virtual church is not the church. Sorry for those of you that are watching online, um, but, uh, but, you know, as I mentioned in the very first week, the church is a gathering of God's people. It's an assembly. The word ecclesia means an assembly or a gathering. And so by definition, that is what the church is. It's, it's a people. And we know that the local church, which is a manifestation of the universal church, is uh, made up of both believers and unbelievers, the tares and the wheat, if you would, as Jesus said. But the true church, those who truly belong to Christ, uh, are those who have been born again by his spirit. And the, the series' uh, big idea or the main idea for our series is to discover or rediscover the church and the joy and the power and the responsibility that comes uh, by being a part of it. This morning, I have the privilege to preach on preaching. That, that's, that's an interesting task. It would be a lot e easier if you were all preachers or seminarians, you know, to, to preach on preaching, but, but you're not. So I have to trust that God will use what I say this morning to prick your hearts and to give you a, a, a greater understanding and appreciation for preaching in the church. And one of the questions that preachers are sometimes asked is, why do we spend the majority of our time on a Sunday morning giving a 45-minute or longer monologue? That's a fair question. You know, our services typically last about an hour and 15 minutes or so, so we're taking up the bulk of that time, uh, giving a, a message that sometimes puts people to sleep. Um, so it's, it's a fair question, and maybe some of you have wondered the very same thing. And so this morning, what I want to try to do is answer that question. I want to answer, why is teaching and preaching central to the worship service, to, to the church? I, I think it's a good question, and, and I think we should all care about that. I remember the, the first time I ever um, 
preached a, a sermon. It was recorded on a cassette tape. You remember what those things look like? Okay. I gave it to my dad to listen to. Now, you have to understand, we grew up Catholic, and uh, we, we, were, we were used to 15-minute homilies at best. And so I gave my dad um, my message and uh, let him listen to it. About a week later, I came back, and I asked him, so, Dad, what, did you listen to the message? And he said, yeah. I said, well, what did you think? That was good. And I said, anything else? Yeah, too long. <laughs> And I said, really? Uh, how long do you think it should have been? He was like, I don't know, five minutes? <laughs> he was serious. Um, I, I think we have to develop an appetite for God's word. Amen. I really do. And over the last few years, I, I can tell you, I have been fervently praying that we all would develop an appetite for God's word. And I think over the last you know, couple of two, three years or whatever, I really believe I've seen in this church a growing appetite for God's word. Um, I mean, if you just stop to think about, and I'm not just talking about Sunday mornings either. I'm, I'm talking about our individual getting into God's word each week. I mean, think about D groups that we launched just a few years ago. I mean, prior to that, I really wonder how many of us were reading Scripture on a daily basis, and, and decent chunks of it at, at that. And to think that we've had, gosh, I try, uh, Ryan, you probably know, but I, it's got to be upwards to 100 or more people that have gone through uh, or are a par- currently a part of discipleship groups. And part of the commitment there is, is that we're reading a chapter or two of scripture uh, uh, five days a week and journaling on it. It's the greatest single spiritual discipline that you can implement in your own life is to read scripture. And that's been happening now for a few years. So the bulk of our people, not everyone, but the bulk of our, our, our people have been engaged in God's word, I think, in, in ways that had not occurred prior to us launching discipleship groups. And it's a sobering thought for me as a preacher to think that a church will never rise above its pulpit. That's very sobering. So in answering the question, why are preaching and teaching central, what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to look at the preeminence of the word. I want us to see the power of the word. And then I want us to see the primacy of preaching in the church. And again, this is an interesting thing for me to be preaching on because I'm actually going to be doing more teaching probably than preaching. But I think you're going to see that they both go hand in hand. So let's uh, open our time in prayer. Father, thank you for our time here this morning, for your word that you have given to us. And Lord, just that song that we sang right before I came up here, Lord, what a prayer. Um, Speak, O Lord. Lord, we want you to speak to us. We want to hear your word. We want to be attentive to it. Lord, we want to obey it. And so, Lord, would you help us? Would you give us the faith? Would you open up our ears and our eyes and our hearts that we might receive all that you have for us this morning? In Christ's name, amen. 
want you to try to answer this question as honestly as you can. You don't have to tell anybody, but I want you to think about it. And that is, if you only had one hour to profit your soul, how would you spend it? And to, to make it simpler for you, let me give you a couple of options. Option one would be is to sit alone with God with an open Bible. Option two is that you would sit under biblical preaching for that hour. What would you choose? Why would you choose it? Just to make sure that you've answered that question, how many would choose option one? Option two. And most of you have no clue as to what you would do. I would choose option two every time. I don't think option one's a bad option. And it may be your only option. But I would choose option two for many reasons, but mostly because preaching is God's primary means of grace in the believer's life. And by means of grace... I mean the outward and the ordinary channels or ways God communicates and imparts his grace, thus strengthening the believer in the faith. It is through the reading and the preaching of the word, through prayer and the sacraments, that he communicates to us the blessings of our redemption. Simply put, the means of grace are God's instruments that God has chosen to communicate his grace and to mature us in the faith. Preaching is God's primary method for communicating the gospel, nurturing believers, and bringing about obedience to the faith. That's, that's my point this morning. That preaching is God's primary method for communicating the gospel, nurturing believers, and bringing about obedience to the faith. Colin Hansen, in the book Rediscover Church, said this. He says, when we get up and gather with the church weekly, because that's where we hear from the divine king, his good news and his counsel for our lives. We hear from him every time we open our Bibles, yes, but we hear from him together in the weekly gathering. We're shaped together as a people there. This is why preaching and teaching are central to our church gatherings. Centering our gatherings around God's word cultivates the heavenly culture that should characterize us as a distinct people so that we can, in turn, be salt and light in our separate cities and nations. So let's look and see what God's word has to say about itself this morning and the role of preaching and teaching in the word. The first thing I want us to look at this morning is the preeminence of the word. We see it across time in creation. All you have to do is turn to John chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, In the beginning was the word, 
And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. You see, before the universe ever existed, before there was time, there was the word. It's preeminent. We see that God also esteems his name and his word above all else. In Psalm 138, we read, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. That's what God thinks about his own word. And we see the preeminence of the word throughout the Old Testament. We see it in God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. We see it in the ministry of the prophets who were sent by God and who spoke the very words of God. We see it in numerous readings of the law and the covenant to all the people. I mean, it's amazing. You, you, you read through, I mean, they just stop, drop everything that they're doing and they gather together and they hear. Sometimes for hours and hours and hours. We also see it in the family life of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, we read that you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So very clearly we see the preeminence of the word in the Old Testament. We could go to so many passages. But we also see the preeminence of the word in the New Testament as well. I mean, if we just take what Jesus said in Matthew chapter four, he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I mean, we wouldn't think about going a day without food, unless you're fasting, unless you need to. No, I mean, I have a hard time going without a meal during the day. I love to eat. And Jesus is saying here, we don't live by just bread alone, but by every word. Not, not, not some of God's words, every word that comes out of his mouth. And then in Matthew chapter 24, he says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. They are enduring. And we see the preeminence of the word even in our own lives and in our church. I mean, think about it. We study, we read, we pray, we memorize God's word. Parents teach their children the word of God. We sing and we pray and we teach and we preach God's word. Our life groups and our D groups are centered on God's word. And we are to respond to God's word in obedience. So it's clear from scripture and even our own experience that God's word is preeminent. And this is one of the reasons why teaching and preaching is so central in the church. Another reason is, is that there's power in the word. So let's talk about that for a minute. The power of the word. There, are no, there is no power 
in, in the eloquence of men. There's, there's no power in worldly wisdom, but there is power in God's word to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. You know, I mentioned how we see the preeminence of God's word in creation, but creation not only testifies to the preeminence of the word, but it testifies to the power of the word. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse three, we read, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that were visible, The psalmist writes in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. God brought the universe and everything in it into existence by speaking it through his word. And we just learned in our study of 2 Peter that not only was the world created by the word, through the word, but that the world was once destroyed by water in the word, and that by that same word, the present heavens and earth will be destroyed by fire. There's power in God's word. God's word has the power to save. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter one. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Believe what? Well, believe the good news of Jesus. And before you can believe the good news, you've got to hear the bad news. The bad news is that we are sinners deserving of God's just punishment. That we were born as children of wrath, that we have inherited a sinful nature that rears its ugly head very early in life. And then we continue to sin. We continue to disregard God's laws and, and, and we seek to live our own life, be our own boss, We are rebelling against God and his authority in our life, but yet God loved us so much that he didn't allow us to continue to go that way, but rather he sent a savior. He sent Jesus Christ to come to earth to take our sin upon himself and to die on a cross, a death that we deserved, but he died in our place so that we might be forgiven. And we're forgiven when we repent of our sins, when we turn from our sins, and we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior. When we accept his sacrifice, his payment for our sins. You know, you've heard me say this before, that that Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. That's the good news. And if anybody falls short of God's heaven, it's because you have refused his only avenue of salvation and redemption, and that is the cross of Christ. He has made a way for you to have a relationship with him, to know that you have eternal life, but you have to be willing to receive that gift for it to become yours. I pray that you've done that.
But if you haven't, I, I urge you, don't leave this place this morning. Don't turn off that TV until you do business with God and you get on your knees before him and say, oh God, I'm a sinner and I deserve your just punishment, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and right now I am turning my life over to him. I pray that you would do that. You see, God has not only ordained the salvation of his elect, he's ordained the means of their salvation, and that is through the preaching of the gospel. But don't be surprised if other people don't respond in faith. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. God's word is powerful. God's word does many other things too. Too many to go into this morning, but here are just a few. God's word guides, sustains, strengthens, and sanctifies us. It imparts knowledge and wisdom. It encourages, convicts, comforts, and heals. It transforms our minds, our lives, our families, and whole cultures. It promotes godly living. God's word powerfully accomplishes all that God wants it to accomplish. I love what the Lord said recorded in the book of Isaiah chapter 55 when he says that my word will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So this is yet another reason why preaching and teaching is central to worship. His word is powerful and it's effectual in accomplishing exactly what God wants to accomplish. So having talked about the preeminence of the word, the power of the word, now I want to spend the remainder of my time talking about the primacy of preaching. And I want to also add to that the primacy of preaching the word as opposed to man's ideas or man's musings because that happens an awful lot too. Now preaching isn't the only way that we communicate God's word but it is God's primary method to communicating the gospel, nurturing believers and bringing about obedience to the faith. Again, we see this in the Old Testament as God sent and spoke through the prophets. I mean, every time you read a thus saith the Lord, I mean, you're hearing the very words of God. We see it in the New Testament. And it's remarkable because we, we, we see it in the fact that God sent a preacher to prepare the way for the greatest preacher the world has ever known. He sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There was something different about when Jesus preached. 
His words had authority. They had power. In Mark chapter 1, it says, and, and he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. I came to preach. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And then he charged his disciples to preach as well. Again, in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says, He appointed twelve, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And in John chapter 21, Jesus commanded Peter to feed his sheep three times. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. I, 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 I suggest it's very important to Jesus that preachers feed the sheep. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon on Joel 2. Where did he learn to do that from? From Jesus. Spent three years with Jesus. We see the primacy of preaching in Acts chapter 6 in the choosing of seven godly men for service. Listen to this. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. It's not that serving tables is unimportant. In this case, taking care of, of widows. But he understood that their primary calling was to preach the gospel. It was the ministry of the Word. And so they, 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 they brought in godly men full of wisdom to take on that task so that they could focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about it, but the book of Acts is incredible on so many fronts. But one of the things that I didn't realize until recently is that one out of every four verses is sermonic. And basically, one out of every four verses is a sermon in the book of Acts. That's... That's the primacy of the word. Preaching was also Paul's primary calling. Um, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's why God saved him. He was a chosen instrument of his to preach the gospel. Then Paul charged his protege, Timothy, to preach the word also. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all with complete patience in teaching. By the way, just down a few more verses, in verse 13, what you see is a template for expository preaching. 
In, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, he, Paul writes, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So you have three elements. The reading of scripture, teaching, and exhortation. Well, what's the difference? Well, teaching or instruction involves interpreting the text and explaining the text and the doctrine that is found in it, as well as how it fits into the whole of scripture. Exhortation deals with persuading and urging and warning and admonishing and encouraging and comforting. Preaching and teaching are inseparably linked together. And though there's no formal distinction between the two, I do believe that there are differences. Teaching can be uh, defined as exposition or explaining the meaning of the text. Well, preaching combines exposition with exhortation. You see, not all teaching is preaching, but all preaching involves teaching. Does that make sense? You follow me? Not all teaching is preaching, but all preaching involves teaching. It has to. Preaching also can't be dispassionate as, as, as teaching can. Now, you can get up behind a lectern and you can give the facts. You can expound, you can explain, and you can do it dispassionately, but not preaching. More on that in a bit. Preaching always involves a call to action of some type. So maybe to, to help you better understand what preaching is, let me first share with you what preaching is not. Preaching is not teaching a class or giving a lecture. It's not an exegetical discourse or a running commentary. It's not a TED talk, a Q&A, or a debate. It's not a fireside chat or a discussion. It's not a practical how-to talk addressing felt needs, nor is it an entertaining monologue or comedy routine. And it's not story time with pastor. I've been in enough churches to probably have um, seen all of this played out from a pulpit on multiple occasions. So what is preaching? Preaching is a unique and distinct form of communication. The word preach is a translation of many different Greek words in the New Testament. It occurs 75 times just in the ESV translation. In general, to preach means to announce, to declare, to proclaim. And it carries the idea of making something known loudly and publicly. Now, there are many definitions of preaching out there. Let me give you a few. Lewis Allen said, preaching is declaring God's truth in Jesus to the praise of his name. J.I. Packer writes, Preaching is the event of God himself, bringing to an audience a Bible-based, Christ-related, life-impacting message of instruction and direction through the words of the spokesperson. Thabiti Anabile said that 
preaching is God speaking in the power of his spirit about his son from his word through a man. And some guy by the name of Paul DeToma said, preaching is the public and faithful proclamation of God's word done in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about God's purposes in the lives of those who hear. That's what preaching is. The aim of the preacher is to glorify God. To glorify God by working diligently to understand what the text says and what the text means and to faithfully proclaim the word of God so as to help people come to faith in Christ and grow in Christ. Biblical preaching is always after the listener and it's always, it's always after the listener in three specific areas. A good sermon addresses the mind, the emotions, and the will. A good preacher always aims, if you would then, for the head, the heart, and the hands. He seeks to inform the mind, ignite the heart, and implore the will. Or if you prefer, he teaches the mind. He inspires the heart, and he challenges the the will. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. He proclaims God's word so that his hearers might learn it, love it, and live it. Those are the three areas, the head, the heart, and the will. And I don't know if you've, you realize this, but listening to the word preached is an act of worship. That's why we ought to listen attentively and intentionally. But let me tell you, so too is the preparation and the preaching of that sermon an act of worship. See, God must first lay hold of the preacher before he can lay hold of the people. His, his mind, his heart, and his will must be captivated and moved by the Spirit of God as he studies the truths of Scripture if he has any hope to move others. The preacher, through his study of the scriptures, sees God more clearly. And when he sees God more clearly, when he sees Christ more clearly, it, it, it leads him to worship. It leads him to rejoice because he knows his Savior that much better. And then when he comes into the pulpit, he, 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 he not only comes in as a worshiper, but he aims to inspire others to worship God through that same word. He delights in the word, and together with God's people, they rejoice in it. John Piper refers to this as expository exaltation, that we rejoice over what God has to say in his word. And I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He says, Pre uh, preaching, is, the, is theology coming through a man who is on fire. I just love that. So now we know what preaching is. What does preaching do? Well, I think we've hit some of it already, but I, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes and he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, good preaching is instructive, but it also reproves, rebukes, and corrects. We like the teaching part. 
we don't necessarily like the reproving, rebuking, correcting part. But that's why God has given us his word. That's why we sit under biblical preaching. And let me tell you something. Um, Preachers feel this tension. I feel this tension. They understand that if they faithfully proclaim God's word, some people will be offended. People may leave the church. The church may shrink. Uh, you can lose your job. That, that is a weekly, if not daily, reality. As we come into this pulpit, we have a choice to make. Are we going to tell you what you want to hear? Or are we going to tell you what God wants you to hear? And trust him for the results. Too many men preach a man-centered gospel. Anybody can draw a crowd. Really. There, there have been times, and I think I've said this before, you know, if I was unethical, if I wasn't a believer, I know how I could get rich. And a lot of guys out there are doing just that. You know, you want a big church? Promise them health, wealth, and prosperity. Tell them God wants them to be happy, that love is love, and that they don't have to worry about hell. You'll get a lot of people. Leonard Ravenhill said this, if Jesus preached the same message ministers preach today, he would never have been crucified. Adrian Rogers adds to that, and he says the problem with preachers today is nobody wants to kill them. Do you understand what he's saying? That there is a lack of biblical preaching in the church today. If all we're doing is helping people feel good about themselves so that we can keep our jobs or get rich, then we're not preaching. I can't afford to tickle your ears. I'm going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for every word that comes out of this mouth, as you will too. I want you to consider the task of the preacher as he comes to preach. Among his many duties, he must preach the word in season and out of season. I'm not sure exactly what in season and out of season is, but I, I means at all times. This past week, I've not been feeling well. I'm still not feeling well. I guess that's out of season <laughs> for me this morning. Preachers tell people what they don't want to hear. Oh, wonderful job. Point out sin, call people to repent. They afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. They confront the complacent. They warn the wayward. They encourage the faint-hearted. They strengthen the weak. They assure those who doubt. They evangelize the lost while feeding the sheep. They equip the saints and impart skills. They foster a love for God and his word and demand obedience to Christ. And then they give all the credit and the glory for God for anything good that comes from their preaching. Colin Hansen in the book Rediscovered Church says that good preaching faithfully reveals the Bible and changes the eyes of your heart, helping you see the world from God's perspective, not your own. So as I conclude, let me simply say that we all need to sit under the faithful preaching of God's word. All of us. 
Paul tells us in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's why I sit in this room when I'm not preaching. I wanna hear the word preached. That's why I listen to messages online when I'm not here. That's why I go to conferences and listen to other preachers. Last week, while I was still on vacation, I visited another church and sat amongst God's people and I listened to the word being preached there. There is something about hearing the word of God, especially in the company of God's people. So I hope that you take this message to heart. I hope that you have gained a deeper appreciation for God's word and the role of preaching in your life and in the life of our church. And I exhort you as much as possible to be physically present and attentive each week as God's word is preached, as we gather together to worship. I urge you to join a life group. If you're not already a part of one, process truth together. Get into God's word and let it get into you. And one final thing, and this is a request, and that is, would you, would you consider praying for those who prepare to preach each week? We need your prayers. I need your prayers. Because again, this is not an exercise in human wisdom and human eloquence. We want God to speak. Speak, O Lord. And reveal to us these truths that we need to understand and apply to our lives. Why are preaching and teaching central in the church? It's because God's word is preeminent. It's powerful. And because it is his primary method for communicating the gospel, nurturing believers, and bringing about obedience to the faith. God has given us all more than an hour to profit our souls. So let's use that time wisely. And may we all grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may he receive all the glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. And for your word, Lord, what a remarkable thing it is to hold in our hands your holy word, your love letter, if you would, to us that reveals to us your beauty and majesty and power and so much more. It gives us direction for our lives and reveals to us the way of salvation. So Lord, we pray that we would cherish it, that we would deeply appreciate it, and that it would be a priority in our lives, not only to read it, but to hear it in the company of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.